0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Marks, and in this episode, American Cinematographer's web director and publisher, David Williams, talks to M. David Mullen, ASC, about pretty much everything related to 1979's Star Trek, The Motion Picture, directed by Robert Wise and photographed by Richard Klein, ASC.
1: One thing, it feels like a big movie. It feels like a serious film, you know, with serious ideas behind it uh, and very polished uh, in its approach. And I like that kind of old-fashioned craft work of just staging for the lens and and working out dramatically what you want to see at any one moment.
0: Mullen's knowledge of Star Trek runs incredibly deep, so while the conversation starts out with the motion picture, it broadens to cover the cinematography and visual design of the whole Trek franchise, from optical effects to costumes, as well as related films like 1971's The Andromeda Strain, which was also directed by Wise and shot by Klein. I'm tempted to make the joke that this episode really goes where no podcast has gone before, but it is a unique and far-reaching look at the making of a true science fiction classic from the perspective of a true artist and a true fan. But first, this episode is brought to you by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skills, this five-day seminar is taught by top directors of photography in person at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities with all necessary equipment provided. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques, as well as instruction in current workflow practices. Upcoming sessions in 2023 will take place August 7th to the 11th, September 18th to the 22nd, an online edition October 13th and 14th, November 13th to the 17th, with a special focus on shooting film, and the New York City Masterclass will be held July 14th to the 16th. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. One last note before we begin— there will be a lot of references to certain shots and scenes from Star Trek The Motion Picture, and we'll have the stills and videos in the transcript on our website, where you will also find links to all of our online Trek coverage, past and present. And now, it's time for the interview.
2: Hello, everyone. Today we're at the Area Education Center at the American Society of Cinematographers, and I'm sitting here today with M. David
1: Mullen, ASC, a Star Trek fan. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to be talking about Star Trek. <laughs> I hope you have six hours to spare. <laughs> yeah.
2: In some of our, our sort of pre-interview discussion,
1: you really started
2: going into like very minute details. You've clearly studied this film many, many times. Yeah. And tell me a, a little bit about your original relationship with this movie.
1: Well, as a young person, I was very heavily into the original Star Trek series when it went into reruns in the late 60s. And I used to play twice a day in, in my local... Uh, TV station, and I'd watch it twice a day. So I got to know these episodes very, very well. And then, of course, we heard that they were going to make a movie version when I was in high school. I got very, very excited to see that. And it came out when I was 17, my last year of high school, uh, when I had moved to Virginia. And so I saw it in Washington, D.C. uh, And it was just such an amazing experience to see Star Trek come back to life. But being such a a nerd, and at this point I had gotten heavily into 2001, which I finally also saw on television in 77, and then when I moved to Virginia I got to see it in a theater. So I had lots of opinions about how they should do the costumes and the sets and the lighting, and and, uh, I was well versed in the cinematography of the original series, although I didn't know at the time the names of all the DPs and the history of the production of the pilots, the two pilots in the series. And I didn't know Richard Klein at the time when I saw Star Trek, obviously, because I was seventeen. But years later, I, I did get to know Richard, and and he was always surprised at my obsession over Star Trek. He was he was a bit scratching his head because he was not a Star Trek uh, nerd like I was. So.
2: Well, and of course, Richard Klein uh, ASC, is the cinematographer of this project, and he had previously worked with Robert Wise on the Andromeda Strain.
1: Yes, and Andromeda Strain is a very good model for, for Star Trek. The two films are shot in, in a similar style, uh, similar use of split diopter filters. I think both films together hold the record for all-time number of split diopter shots. Uh, someone recently said there were like 78 split diopter shots in Andromeda Strain, and I've counted almost the same number. And Star Trek, so it's quite impressive when you think of it that way. But the DNA of, of Star Trek is in Andromeda Strain in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But
2: the, and we were discussing before, the DNA of the original series is in this movie so much. It's such a continuation of that storytelling, yeah. and even in terms of the, the style, you'll see, you know, in the production design specifically. There was this, there's a scene in Kirk's ready room when uh, he's sort of dressing down. Deckard, and you look at the certain shapes of various things, and it's like, it's the colors, it's the shapes, it's it's the whole approach to that kind of design, but it's just on a bigger scale.
1: Yeah, and this film originally was going to be a TV series. They called it Phase 2 at the time, and they built a lot of the sets for Phase 2, so they were television sets that then got redressed by Harold Michelson when it became a big-budget feature film. So even in the course of watching this movie, you see a kind of odd mix of of art directing styles because Harold Michelson, I think, I don't know for sure, but he had probably seen uh, what Ken Adams did for the James Bond films for... uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, which is heavy use of aluminum, and uh, or or stainless steel kind of cladding on the sets, and you in s- you see that in the submarine pen set and in the Spy Who Loved Me, and I think he took a lot of the sets in Star Trek and started cladding them in stainless steel to make it look you know less like painted plywood, but the bridge set is still built in the style of the original series with curved wooden walls that were painted in flat gray or something like that and then but then the hallways got reclad in metal. so the sets have a kind of strange hybrid quality to them too um, to you know,
2: well, the, visually, yeah. I always connected to the, the stainless steel of, of various aspects of the enterprise with all the stainless steel in Andromeda Strain. Yeah. The way all the labs and everything had that metallic, futuristic feel and that very spare, yeah. silvery-gray quality.
1: I think some of it was just the architectural um, movements of the 70s. You, you know, If you go to Washington, D.C., where I lived for a while, and you go into these the metro stations and ride the metro cars, they remind you a lot of the art direction of Star Trek and Space Nineteen Ninety Nine, this kind of brutalism uh, architecture with a lot of geometric shapes and you know square, rounded, rectangular windows, and and everything's very modular. So that design approach that was popular in architecture was also popular in science fiction of the '70s and Star Trek. So it's a continuation of the original series modified through the eyes of the 70s and some of that you see in the color schemes. The use of, of orange upholstery and things like that is is very much a 70s kind of, of touch. Which is interesting because Robert Wise himself, his films, tend to be on the cool side. So you've got these warm art direction touches in the film, and yet a lot of the film has a cold, steely quality too, and, and some s- scenes are very lit, very cold, and some scenes are a little warmer. And I've got the impression over the years that uh, Robert Wise has kind of wanted to pull back from the coldness of Star Trek. I know in this latest, uh, the director's cut, uh, they've timed scenes warmer than the original release prints really had. And I don't know if that's why Wise kind of thinking maybe he should warm up the film and make it less cold, or his tastes have changed. If, if you read interviews with him in the 70s, like for Hindenburg, um, he talks about how he doesn't like uh, warm printed scenes. and I, But that might have been because Hindenburg was a period film and he didn't like the way period films in the 70s were getting very orangey and golden and he he wanted Hindenburg to have a kind of steely gray quality to it. But Star Trek has also some similarities with the Hindenburg. I think that was shot by... I think that was Bob Sertes. But there is an interesting history with the cinematography of Star Trek and it goes past this film because with Star Trek 1, 2, 3, and 4... You have these films we made in the 80s right at the beginning of, of the release of new high-speed film stocks from Kodak and Fuji. And so the early Star Trek features are kind of a snapshot of the technology changes that were happening in the 80s in the film industry. And this film is a reflection of what, of course, technology was happening in the end of the 70s. So. One could certainly teach a class about the history of cinematography based around Star Trek. I think because it's it's rare that you get the same actors and similar sets mm-hmm. being lit by different cinematographers with different technology as it's evolving through that decade. So it, it's kind of fascinating from a purely uh, archaeological standpoint. But as a Star Trek fan too, it's, it's it's it was interesting to see how they reimagined Star Trek, clearly influenced by 2001 at this point. Not both story-wise and, and style-wise. But there are elements of the original series in there. There's some of the shadowy lighting on the bridge is, is reminiscent of some of the things that Jerry Finnerman did, particularly in the first season of the original series.
2: When you spoke with Richard Klein, he was surprised that it had the enduring quality that it has had. For him, the enduring quality, I think, in the way that he spoke to me, was Robert Wise it wasn't about star trek it was about the, the storyteller and how uh, the, the canvas was painted i don't think he understood the fanaticism about star trek
1: no he, he was a different generation i don't think you know he was watching star trek uh, when, as a, as a young person he was working as a cinematographer in the 60s so uh, yeah I, I don't think uh, he was a fan and he didn't uh, you know he approached it i think fresh you know, with Robert Wise, uh, really based on their work on Andromeda Strain, and and Wise's interest in deep focus cinematography because he was the editor on Citizen Kane. I think his lesson from working with Orson Welles is that there's a certain powerful graphic quality to deep focus compositions uh, if you stage it properly for the lens where you have things happening in foreground and midground and background. And Star Trek in particular every cinematographer who's who's had to deal with that bridge set even in the current versions of Star Trek you have essentially a circular room where where you have a navigator and a helmsman in the foreground the captain in the midground and then someone in a console in the background and dialogue is flying back and forth all around the captain and this you know you're even having to deal with focus racks or focus splits or camera moves or it's it's a staging and depth problem inherent in the design of The bridge, and it was that way ever since the original series. In the 60s, they solved it by using a lot of light and stopping down, and and it's amazing when you watch the original Star Trek, considering it's done on a television schedule, how scenes seem to be lit to a deep stop at times, to hold Kirk in the foreground and Spock in the background in fairly good focus, and considering it was only 50 ASA film too, it's just amazing. In the case of Star Trek The Motion Picture, They resorted to split diopter filters to create a deep focus effect because they couldn't light the sets to a deep stop. The lighting of the consoles, the rear projection of the the TV screens, those were all 16 millimeter projectors. And so they had a set amount of illumination um, where they would read, which was probably about a 2.8. So most of Star Trek is shot at a 2.8, but they're trying to create the effect of being shot at like a... 5, 6, or an 8 by using split diopter filters, there are a few shots in the film where they just sort of lit to a deep stop because either they couldn't use a split diopter, or because there was visual effects involved and they needed a better stop for the anamorphic lenses or they switched to VistaVision or a 65. And you can see the, the lighting. The room change. You can see that the consoles are fairly dim, the buttons don't read very brightly, but everything's in focus now. I'm not sure the rhyme or reason. Some of it was, there's a sequence near the end where where William Shatner proposed doing it mostly in a not in a true one, but mostly in a dolly move where Kirk is uh, bluffing and and has everyone leave the bridge the Enterprise and turn everything off, and they all go into the elevator, and Ilya's left standing uh, alone in the room, and the camera's just dolling forward and back with, with Shatner as he goes into the elevator and back into the room and back in the elevator. And most of the scene is playing in that one shot with the reverse angle. And you can tell that they had the light to a higher stop for that camera move. Um, but in that case, all the consoles have been turned off, story-wise. So, so why uh, you know, Klein didn't feel the need to work at a low level of illumination, and he could work at a higher stop for that. As a cinematographer, how
2: often have you been put in the position where, because of some f- production factor, you're forced to shoot in a certain way that you wouldn't have normally wanted to do it, but it ends up having to become a style? In, in, yeah. in this case, with Klein, as you described, with the illumination of the, uh, the consoles and, and, and playbacks and whatnot, he was tr- kind of trapped, and he came up with the solution of the split diopters, which, you know as you described, but they made it a style. You know, and it's one that's very memorable and very effective. Have you been in that situation before?
1: Well, you try not to get caught because you, um, but yes, whenever you plan the look of any project, you have to factor in what you can control and what you can't control. You can't control how bright a candle is, so you have to work with how bright a candle is, or or if uh, there's going to be a burning building in the shot, how bright that can be. You have to stage everything around those factors In the case of a room full of TV sets or or other things where you can't really adjust the levels too much, you plan around that. Or if the director says he wants to use a zoom lens, that is a certain amount of light you need for that versus a prime lens. In the 70s, a lot of films, despite the fact that film was only 100 A.S.A., it was very popular to use zoom lenses for everything. So in an anamorphic film particularly, wide open is four, five, six split. So you see these films uh, trying to do low-light photography, but with a zoom lens, by pushing the film stock, you know, like Vilma Sigmund's work and uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and stuff. But in the case of Star Trek, they wanted a very pristine, clean, sharp look, so they opted not to push the film for the most part, which meant uh, working at 100 ASA and with monitors that had to be shot at a 2.8. So... Wise was not particularly a zoom lens kind of director, luckily, for Klein. So in that aspect, he could work with prime lenses, but also just because they didn't have the stop for a zoom. Uh, and as I said, when you see the movie, the few times a zoom lens comes out, you can see the lights of the consoles are dimmer because they've lit now to a 4.56 instead of a two, eight. You know, there's one
2: scene aboard the Enterprise um, on the bridge um, when the Vidra probe comes in and basically takes Alia off the bridge, and there's a huge, massive shift in image quality and color. What can you tell us about that?
1: Well, they wanted the sequence to be lit just by this bright uh, light of this probe, which was a column of some sort of xenon, I think, type lighting rig that was pushed around on a dolly by a uh, grip. And the problem was that in the original live-action footage, there's a brilliant shaft of light, uh, this device, and it's the only lighting in the room, so it, it's actually all the lights coming from this bright column of light. But the original live-action footage, you could see a guy pushing it around. And when Robert Abel was fired off the effects for the film and and Trumbull and Dykstra took over, they had no idea what Abel's plan was to get rid of the dolly grip out of the shot. And so I think it was John Dykstra who took over this sequence. And his solution was to rear-project this footage onto a, a screen and then reflect it off of a mylar screen. And so he's shooting a reflection of a rear-projected image on a piece of mylar. And then behind the mylar, they ran a magnet that could pull and push the mylar. So they essentially could bend and crease the image in the center where the column was, and it essentially took out a couple feet of the image. And and got the dolly grip out of the shot. But as, so as the probe goes around the room, you see the room squeeze and, and collapse around that line of light, which Dykster kind of thought was interesting because it almost looked like a black hole kind of distortion effect, like, like everything was being warped by this bright light. But that was just his solution to get rid of the dolly grip. But now you have footage that he managed to get rid of the dolly grip, but it's all a, a rephotographed rear projection image. So it's grainy, it's soft. It kind of works because it's such a strange sequence at the only lighting coming from this bright column light. Then Robert Swarth, the animator, had to go in and put a moray pattern animation effect where that bright column of light was to make it look more like a alien probe, and then they added the lightning bolt effects, too, on top of that. When they restored this recently, I was listening to the commentary, and I think Docterman was desperate to find the original live-action footage because, obviously, now, if they had the original negative, they could easily erase the dolly grip without having to reproject project the footage, but they could not find the original production negative for this particular sequence, so even now, it's still a cleaned-up, 35-millimeter rephotograph for a projection image.
2: That's crazy. I never imagined that that was the the process by which they did it. Where did you come across that information?
1: That's in the Cinefix article. The very first issue of Cinefix, issue number one, which I got as a teenager in 1979, right after Star Trek came out, was with an interview with Douglas Trumbull. And then issue number two was an interview with John Dykstra. And then somewhere around issue eight or so was an interview with Robert Swartz about doing the uh, animation effects for the film. So that's, you know, as a young person, I originally thought I might go into visual effects, so I did a lot of reading of cinefacts and, and books on, on effects. And, it, and this film was a particular teaching ground, I think, for, for optical animation, compositing and things, because Dykstra did all his model work with blue screen and, and Trumbull did all his model work with front-lit, back-lit. Mat process. Because the Enterprise was a shiny object, uh, they couldn't use a blue screen. So instead they shot it in silhouette and motion control. They would shoot a beauty pass against black and then they'd shoot another pass in silhouette against white. But even that had matte problems with it and they had to do rotoscope work or sometimes they, they covered the whole model with white tape and shut it again against black to get a you know, trying to get a high con mad of the, of the, of the model basically so they could then composite a background into it and that required multiple Motion control passes on the model, but just understanding, reading those articles, trying in my head understand what an optical printer composite was—that involved, a, you know, essentially a negative and positive matte, uh, high contrast matte of the image, because essentially, you—the way you composited an image over another image back then, is the foreground image. You, you, Both elements, let's say, were on original camera negative. Now you make an positive of those images and you load them into a pr- uh, to projector side of an optical printer. What you want to do is re-photograph both so that they don't uh, ghost over each other. So essentially you have to hold out part of the image as you re-photograph it. So you have the foreground, let's say, and uh, from that it was shot against blue screen or white screen or whatever you do you create a holdout mat, which is that object as a black shape against clear film, and you create a reverse of that, which is a black background with a clear hole where the object was. So now you have the ability to hold back everything around the object, or hold back everything where the object was. So essentially, you take that foreground element, and uh, let's say it's a person, and now you have a silhouette version of it. You take that black shape of that person and you you basically put it in front of the positive of the background and you rephotograph that background. And now you've got the background rephotographed on the NUGA negative but with a black unexposed hole essentially where that person will go. Now you load the person and you put a... The opposite—you put a black shape around them, so they only expose in that hole that, that's been left for them on the negative, and everything else is is left unexposed. Where you've already exposed the background, and now you have a negative that has the positive, has the background and the foreground added together without them uh, ghosting over each other. That's a very low tech way to describe it. But as a teenager reading these Cinefix articles and trying to understand high con mats and all these sort of things, you start to understand the whole principle of how images get copied generation to generation, from negative to positive to negative to positive, and and what generation loss means, and, and all these things that are irrelevant now, because now movies are digitally compositive and there's no such thing as generation loss, but uh, that's... No, there's compression loss. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but up until you know 2000, when uh, digital compositing kind of took over, it's something all cinematographers had to factor in. That, that my, is my shot going to be Duped is it? Is it going to be first generation? Is it going to be from an interpositive, internegative, uh, and what's going to happen to the image? And is it going to match the, you know, the live action footage that isn't duped? It was a problem for credit sequences. It was a problem for optical fades and dissolves and lap dissolves. It was just something you had to uh, live with or think about. How do you feel about
2: the visual style of motion picture? was continued or not continued within the the framework of the, the feature film franchise. Wrath of Khan looks dramatically different from this, but it's a different adventure. Yeah. But
1: well, you know, you have both the change shifts in style of lighting over time where where lighting has gotten softer and more source motivated. I think the problem with this the bridge set that the, all the earlier cinematographers ran into is it was not designed to light the actors from the set itself, unlike the sets in 2001, where you have, in all the consoles on the Discovery, you have a, a light bar at the bottom of the console that's glowing up in the actor's face. It, it serves no purpose other than to light the actors, so they don't have to be lit artificially with extra lighting too much. They're just lit by the consoles and, the, and what appears to be fluorescent lights in the set. Um, it's all tungsten back then, but it's meant to look like fluorescence. So in 2001 you have sets designed to be self-illuminating, whereas the Star Trek bridge really wasn't. You have a solid ceiling set with a kind of radiator fin design where they can hide movie lights, and the same with the original Star Trek series, too. It was the ceiling uh, they lit from with back then with 2Ks and 1Ks and spots. And it gives it a sort of theatrical look, but it's not necessarily doesn't feel like what a spaceship would actually be lit by. So Star Trek has never been lit in a completely documentary-style way. It's always had a somewhat theatrical look. Over the years, they've tried to design more and more the lighting into the sets. That sort of started with Star Trek Enterprise, uh, the TV show, where they built uh, little spots, little you could see kind of uh, MR-16 type can lighting all around the bridge set designed to aim at the actors and aim at the consoles and, and sort of self-illuminate. Uh, a lot of the actors at times so that they actually lit by the set. Um, but in this case, with the Enterprise Bridge in the original series and I mean, and in the movie series, you had to do a lot of lighting yourself from off camera.
2: Was that just the thought process back then of the division between departments as well?
1: Well, you know, I think in 2001 you had specifically a director, Stanley Kubrick, wanting sort of the ultimate in, in realism and having a photographic background himself liking to design the lighting into the sets. That wasn't the norm necessarily for movies, so I think Star Trek is more traditionally art directed where the art director will put in things that you say, well, you could motivate light from this or that, but it's not really doing the actual work of lighting. In fact, I remember uh, articles on Star Trek IV where Don Peterman talked about how uh, he would actually remove parts of the consoles of the, of the Klingon bridge, and then later when the Enterprise shows up at the end, if there, anything was off camera, he would remove the console and put fluorescent tubes and diffusion so that the actors would be lit by the glow from the console um, if it was off camera. Uh, now you would try to design the the console to do it naturally so you could photograph it and photograph the actor at the same time. But they just didn't do that for for Star Trek, so they're forced to light from off camera. In the case of the original movie, Klein does an interesting mix of soft bounce lighting and hard key lighting. It's, it's kind of his style at the time. It was kind of... A lot of the close ups are lit with the, the light bouncing to card, So it's got a nice, semi soft key light, not hard. But then he'll fill with a hard little eye light. He often handheld a little inky light in his, and he would walk near the lens and try to get the actor's eyes lit with that. Uh, but there are other shots in this, this where it's clearly a harder light with topper flags and cutters to create shadows and, and spots and things to create mood, um, which, you know, you're not sure. What would be doing that in real life, it's just it's there for atmospheric effect. Then in Star Trek II, I think Gain Rescher did similar things, but in that case he was working with f- the first Fuji high-speed film so he could work at a lower light levels, and he they replaced all the 16 millimeter screens with uh, CRT screens, so he didn't have to light just to balance the screens, the screens were brighter, the film stock was faster. They didn't have to use split diopters anymore to get a decent depth of field. Did they also shoot that anamorphic? No? All the Star Trek films are anamorphic except for Six, okay. which was Hero Narita shot. But, you know, Game Retro had just a different style of lighting. They wanted more color like the original series, more, you know, red lights for, for scenes. And, and I think the film that takes it to the most extreme is Star Trek Three, that I think this Charles Coral shot. Uh, they deliberately, he and the... Leonard Nimoy directing, wanted to have a call back to the original series by use colored gels on the Enterprise uh, sets. Although, in the original series, they never really lit faces with colored lighting because that just wasn't considered you know proper back then. Skin tones had to be kind of always protected. So a lot of the colored lighting in the original show is always in the background walls and, and things. But but in Star Trek three you see the whole bridge go deep blue when they... You know, at some point, uh, or deep red, and other points, they they really went strong with the colored gels in Star Trek three. In Star Trek one, there's some colored lighting, uh, but it's not dominant. Uh, the background of the corridors and the, and the engineering is has that deep blue look. There's some emergency red lighting that comes up briefly and then fades back to white. Um, there's some interactive lighting when they go through V'ger where V'ger is, is projecting some sort of flashing effect. So Richard Klein is doing some strobe flashing on the actor's face. It's interesting because I, I suspect he would have done more of that, but they had no idea what was going to be created later by Trumbull. Or Abel. Or Abel. So it's interesting just to to see the stylistic progression over the first few features as the film stocks got faster and faster, they you know Star Trek three I think he pushed the the high speed film a stop and lit everything to like a five six the whole deep focus Star Trek five uh, Andrew Laszlo, there are a couple split diopter shots in there like just two or three um, but for the most part out of need not for you know, some
2: specific style
1: well it wasn't the style of the overall movie it was just a specific shot where they wanted that dramatic effect of a split diopter shot whereas opposed in Star Trek one it was wasn't so much that they were trying to do some sort of arty split-diopter look like you see in a Brian De Palma film, like a blowout or something where he's going for a very graphic stylized effect with the split-diopter shots. In Star Trek One, it was just to create a feeling of deep focus. You know, at times it's dramatic because someone in the foreground is big in the frame and some in the background is far, but there are times where they use it when you wouldn't really need to use it, like an over-the-shoulder shot, where the back of Deckard's head, or or Shatner's head is in focus, you know, like his earlobe is in focus with the split diopter, or or on the bridge where some minor crew member... I was exactly thinking of that. There's someone,
2: arms crossed, looking uh, askance at Kirk as he's dressing down Deckard or something. Yeah,
1: and those shots don't quite work. I think part of the problem on the bridge set is that a split diopter often causes any horizontal lines to be uh, broken by the vertical split of the filter, and the bridge set has this railing that goes around the whole circle. So every time the split diopter comes in, the rail gets split and broken visually. There are other sets in this film where you can't see the split diopter at all because the set has vertical lines in it and the diopter lines up perfectly with them and, and it's a very invisible effect. But on the bridge set, there are shots where you can clearly see, because all the horizontal lines in the design of the set being split by the filter. But I think when it does work, it, it works very well. It, it allows the actors to sort of play off each other without having a focus shift back and forth or ping pong the focus for the dialogue. You you have multiple people reacting to the same thing like the V'ger moments. But when you're
2: creating split diopter shots like that, very
1: complex shots, you're also
2: having to hem the actors in. They can't really move around a lot. Yeah. Can that be difficult as a cinematographer to work with the actors and try and get them on board with what you have to do visually?
1: Well, I think... it depends on why you're using the, the split diopter, but um, in this case, luckily or not, the actors are stuck in their spots. They're, they're Kirk's in his chair, everyone's in a chair, essentially. So when those scenes happen, it's kind of a easy in some ways to put in a split diopter since no one's getting out of their chair. It scenes where more people are more free to move around where you, you have to design when you're going to use the split diopter and how you're going to get it and cut to it or, or somehow slide it into frame. There's an interesting split diopter shot in um, All the President's Men where the camera, it's very tricky, the camera pans Robert Redford off the street and into a phone booth and then it pans, like, left to right, and he goes around, and then he goes to the door of the phone booth, and it pans back left, and he lands. When he lands, on the left side, you can see the executive office building in focus. Um, It doesn't, the split doctor is not meant to say something specific. It's just there to create a feeling of unease that, is he being listened to? Well, we're going to have this famous government building in the background in focus while he's in this conversation uh, to give the paranoid feeling that anyone could be listening on this phone call. But because the shot pans into the phone booth and lands, at some point that split director had to be slid manually into the frame just as the camera pans back left again as he goes through the door of the phone booth. I mean, it's seamless. You don't notice it. And so it's an interesting use of the split-diopter in that film. There's a couple split-diopter shots in that movie. In the newsroom, the famous shot with television and Nixon's Nixon's speech, etc. Yeah, so in Star Trek, there's some unusual split-diopter shots. There's on the bridge... uh, when they're leaving the uh, dry dock, there's the obvious one where Sulu's in the foreground and Kirk mm-hmm. is in the background. But there's also a three shot of Ilea, Sulu and Kirk where they've got a split diapter only covering the left and right third and it's clear in the center. And then they cut to a side angle with Sulu in the foreground. Now they have to put a special diopter that only covers Sulu and it's clear on Kirk. But then a minute later, there's a similar composition and it's done just by using more light and stopping down. It might have been because Sulu's arms are extended and they didn't want the director to go through his arms mm-hmm. or the split director shot before, it was more of a moderately wide lens, like a 50 or a 65. But then this this other shot is wider, like a 40 mil. We're looking
2: at some very specific shots from uh, a bridge sequence, and we're gonna post them up in the episode notes. Yes. There's a number of, of shots on the bridge that are very unusual, and I've never seen them in any other Star Trek film, and we're actually looking at one of them now. We'll reproduce it in the notes. It's a shot of Kirk in his his uh, command chair. It's an overhead shot.
1: Yeah. It is unusual, but it, there is an overhead shot in the uh, original Star Trek. It's either the uh, second pilot, where no man has gone before, or the uh, Corbin Knight maneuver, but it's a very early, mm-hmm. early episode where the director went way up in the air, and I think he zoomed in and out a little bit, but he, he was almost over the bridge, looking down on the bridge, and uh, he started on the console, I think, and zooms out wide or something mm. like that. So, But they never did it again after that. There's a lot of tricky shots in the early TV show. Uh, like in the second pilot, uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before, uh, they did something they didn't try again until they did Star Trek uh, with, J.J. Abrams, where without a cut, they went into the enterprise turbo lift on one level and then came out, the doors open, they're on the bridge of the Enterprise. They did that in their, in Where No Man Has Gone Before by doing an overhead shot of Gary Marshall hopping through the doors of the turbo lift and then the camera booms down to high level and when the doors reopen you see the bridge of the Enterprise and then the camera tracks through the doors and you almost see off the set as it's tracking forward um, on the ceiling. The original Star Trek directors tried to do these shots but the original series constantly went over schedule. They're almost always a day or day and a half over schedule and it drove the network crazy. By the time they got to the 3rd season and NBC took over from Desilu, they pretty much weren't allowed to go over schedule anymore. And all and the, the shows
2: f- became simpler and simpler yeah, and less experimental. And the
1: directors that went over schedule didn't get asked back essentially. So a lot of the interesting directors in the first season unfortunately didn't come back after a while because they just couldn't do the show and the, I think it was five, six days allotted per episode, which is tight, you know, for an hour-long show. Uh. There was a little bit more
2: embracing of, like, kind of a psychedelica in the, uh, yeah. the third season.
1: Yeah, and camera movement was very hard on this set because they'd made the decision that the bridge set would be a solid... Piece of set. The only way to get onto it is either through the elevator doors, or they actually had to step through the screen. The screen was, since it was not a real screen, it essentially was a door onto the set. But that meant all the camera moves, the dolly moves, all had to be done within the bridge set itself, which was very difficult because it's a multi-tiered set with a railing and it was complicated to do any kind of camera moves. They tried things like overhead rails, they tried dolly track on the deck. When they finally got to Star Trek Two, and, and Nicholas Meyer took over, the first thing he had them do was to chainsaw the set and the pie slices so they could actually get a real crane in there. And then when he did Star Trek Six, he used the steady cam on the bridge set, which is something Shatner had started on Star Trek V. But Star Trek One, they didn't have that option. And there was a shot that I think in the commentary track... I was Docterman, or someone was saying that it was almost that floating handheld shot, where it lands on Spock. It's the scene where he turns around and reveals he's crying. It starts out panning around everyone on the bridge and lands on Spock's back. It's not a handheld shot. What to me, what it is is it's a dolly move, done on the upper deck of the bridge. But because they're stuck putting a piece of curved track on to match the curve of the bridge and they're trying on a long lens to pan from face to face to face, essentially the camera operator is having to do a lot of what you call back panning. Mm -hmm. Essentially the camera's sliding one way, but to keep someone centered, he's having to actually correct out the uh, drift on the dolly move. And so it ends up making the shot look like it's shaking or floating around when it's actually just the operator trying to do, be steady while the dolly is moving, but hold on one person, go to the next person, then go to the next person, and finally land on Spock's back. But later Star Trek, they solved it by splitting up the bridge, side, which is how the original series was done. There their camera angles constantly in the original series, where you can see that they've cut away, you know, there's a lot of shots of, of Spock at his viewer with Kirk in the background, where the camera is in a camera port. Essentially, they pulled the console away that's to the left of Spock, and you can see the actual missing end of the console. They tape black carded it, so it's just a black shape, but it's clearly not continuous set. Uh, Back in the day in NTSC, CRT, you're not going to see any of that. (laughs) Yeah, One of the oddest things about the original show that someone has pointed out that I didn't notice as a kid was that because every time you shot... Uh, Chekhov and Sulu at their console from Kirk's point of view, you had the view screen in the background, but they couldn't always... Afford to put a background in that screen. So they actually sometimes took that console and turned it sideways so they wouldn't have the screen in the background. So you actually have shots sometimes of Sulu or Chekhov from Kirk's point of view where the background is clearly been shifted way over to, to oh. get the screen out of the frames because they couldn't oh. put a background in that screen. Right. They couldn't afford either in terms of cost or time yeah. or both.
2: To have uh Lynn Dunn or yeah. or someone else drop. Yeah, again. so they
1: just took the chairs and the helm console and turned it like forty-five degrees, so they could then sh- not shoot towards the screen, which looks very odd if you if you actually notice it. But as I never noticed, I've, now that people have shown me stills, though, it's very. Now odd, you can't but, unsee it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the shots in the old show where they used to flip shots because. They were missing a close up so they they would it's the wrong screen direction, so they would take a shot and flop it, but now Kirk's, you know, badge is on the wrong side of his chest and his hair is parted on the wrong side of his head and things like that.
2: There's the great sequence where Kirk comes down into the engine room and talks with Scotty about getting the warp drive online. And there's that beautiful set piece that was created by Sam Nicholson for the whole warp core. Do you know much about that?
1: It's an amazing bit of old-fashioned art direction. There's a high-angle shot, point-of-view shot, looking down the warp core, which is just a forced perspective painting on the floor of the sound soundstage um, below the uh, set. And it lines up almost perfectly perfectly. Uh, it's all in camera, and it's just old-fashioned, false perspective painting. And then the warp core effect itself was a interactive lighting gag that Sam Nicholson did using rotating... Mylar mirrors and lights bounced into them and then reflecting onto the things. I'm not sure how it was rigged. It's very well done. I feel like the later movies never got it as good as the first film. You know, they've essentially simplified it by by the time they get to Next Generation, other shows are just doing a pulsing light that goes up and down the column. But in this film, it, it looks like a, a shimmering gassy kind of. Effect. It looks like, like something organic. Yeah, it's very very organic and and hard to figure out how they did it. It doesn't look like just a a bunch of neon tubes going up and down like a Next Generation of things. So uh, it's, it's very impressive. And he also did the interactive lighting at the end of the film when they get to V'ger. Uh, and it's, it's very well done. You should interview uh, Sam sometime and ask him about it. I'm sure they were. it was mechanically you know, the stagecraft, essentially uh, some sort of rotating uh, well, mirror and I know a little uh, bit about
2: it if only because Sam is getting an award from the ASC this year, the Curtis Clark Technical Achievement Award, and we did a, a little bit of an interview with him and we did discuss that, and you know, his background in terms of being a creative person was in creating glass sculpture and glass blowing, so he was doing that while a student, and he was recommended by some of the faculty at his school, they had heard about this technical issue this set piece issue uh, on Star Trek and they recommended him because he was starting to do light sculptures with blown glass globes and so he showed like a little model of some of the things he was doing and they said oh that's really interesting kid here's some money make something bigger (laughs) and so he came back with an eight-foot-tall demo mock-up of what he thought a warp core could look like and they loved it and so they they contracted him to build something that would ultimately be a 60-foot long sculpture of rotating glass bubbles and mylar, as you described, in what Sam described as light guns, uh, which I'm not exactly sure what those yeah. are, uh, you know, back in, back in the 70s, what those would have been. But it really was very much an art piece, and that's what yeah. launched his entire career in visual effects. Yeah.
1: Well, also, the uh, engineering deck also has a vanishing perspective, you know, horizontals too, the, the long... Uh, horizontal warp core is a is a receding set piece that gets smaller and smaller where they put smaller and smaller actors in in the background just a little like an alien when they used kids to play the astronauts at the base of the uh, spaceship on the mm-hmm. alien landscape here they used small and smaller actors and that 's something that Harold Michelson liked to do a lot and point where Mel Brooks made fun of it in history of the world. Part one, where uh, he built a uh, French, you know, Versailles set with a receding perspective corridor, and Mel Brooks as is, is King Louis runs down that corridor and gets to the end of it, and he's now huge, and it's a tiny end of the set, and he goes, "What the hell is going on here?" Well,
2: in terms of you know visually, the film
1: is like there's a lot of standout sequences
2: that are mostly I would attribute to the work that. Trumbull and Dykstra gave to the picture. I mean, their visual effects work is still top-notch. But photographically, what Richard Klein did on set What's a particular scene that still stands out to you and you think is well executed?
1: There's a number of really nicely lit close-ups scattered throughout the whole film. And for the most part, the film is shot clean, but the, uh, they clearly use some very light diffusion on some of the close-ups to make Deckard and Ilea look more romantic. And they're nicely bounce lit with some of the soft key uh, that sticks out a little bit, but it, it's, it's a very nice portrait lighting he does on the bridge. I think the climax, Trumbull had told them, Uh, that they should do the ending of the film all with visual effects and they just didn't have time or budget and they had sort of set themselves on trying to do it in camera. It's something that didn't work for the memory, what they called the memory wall sequence, which became the Spock spacewalk sequence. they had shot this physical set that was supposed to be like the memory banks of V'ger with with Shatner and Nimoy on wires in a spacesuit being dangled through it. And it was like a fantastic voyage. At some point, they get attacked by antibodies. It was terrible, and and they Trumbull said it couldn't be saved, and he proposed doing the whole uh, Spock spacewalk as a, as a kind of mind-blowing 2001 trip sequence and sped up and, and fast, which is why it's a great sequence. But the end of the film, where they find V'ger... Richard Klein and Wise were determined they could do this in camera, basically, uh, with the interactive lighting, and uh, the whole sequence goes through these series of of light cues where it goes into red lighting and and other things, and flashing and lightning bolt effects, and a lot of it's shot through uh, net diffusion, partly because extend those I like to to give it a somewhat mysterious dreamlike quality but also uh, a trick that apparently Klein liked to do because I read about this on King Kong um, he will do an in-camera effect by by hitting the edge of the lens with a light um, there was a sequence supposed to be lit by flares in King Kong where they light flares and they didn't really couldn't light the whole set with with military flares so instead he actually faded up a red light on the edge of the lens so it would flare out the lens as okay, it
2: just fill the whole
1: and glow the whole frame for a moment with with light as if it uh, as a flare had had burned out the image um, so it's all in camera so I like can soil and green where he did a lot of the day exteriors by shooting through a tank aquarium tank with smoke so in this case he has a net on the front of the lens so he could hit the edge of the lens with light so it would it would things would glow across the frame as if um, as if feature is you know, sort of emanating and flaring through the frame so they could do things in camera but to do that he needed something to catch the light so he used a piece of netting uh, in front of the lens as far as I can tell um, and you can see the net occasionally if you look carefully at the way light uh, flares and you can see the pattern in the net but it gives the whole sequence a kind of slightly dreamlike quality plus the smoke and and the interactive lighting but I think actually works pretty well. I think if they'd done it all with visual effects you might have lost something of the human element of the sequence which is, is that Star Trek always comes back to Humanity being able to solve its problems, you know, the Kirk and Spock and McCoy together figure out the problem and solve it and do that. It's really becomes an acting scene it would have been nice to do some big visual effects sequence. I think the fact that it all boils down to them in this small space working the problem, I think actually works better dramatically. And the film has enough big visual effects with the trip through V'ger, and it, of course it climaxes with a big explosion and light show. So I don't think they didn't do, do this whole sequence in the core of the with as a kind of dreamlike surreal landscape. I think it's better that it's contained with the uh, V'ger model there and the actors being able to act and interact with each other and and talk among themselves. So I think it works quite well but I think the lighting cues and the sound design is quite impressive too. It's interesting that the kid who who acted in the original TV series created, they call it the blaster beam or something, it was this big metal pipe that created that strange sound. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was the DJ sound and they, they were on this, the mix stage using it like a musical instrument essentially. Goldsmiths would have him play it and then they would do different variations until something sort of worked musically. So it's it's also a, partly a musical instrument and partly a sound effect, but it very, works very much to become the voice of Vija to create an alien voice. And it's also nice because it's not a, a synthesizer, you know. It's it's actually an organic thing that's creating these. It almost stems. sounds
2: like one of those Aboriginal Australian yeah, the musical Ridgid- instruments, didgeridoo kind of. Thing. Is that what it's yeah. called?
1: I think it was Craig Huxley. Now I'm thinking I got confused, with uh, Kirk Thatcher was the played the, who did some music. And also was the punk in the Star Trek Four. But I think it was Craig Huxley who became a musician, and he did these these blaster sounds for Star Trek One. You know, it's a side effect of the fact that they didn't have time to cut the film properly for preview audiences. But they gave Jerry Goldsmith just huge swaths of this movie to score without any imagery to work from, just with slugs saying, you know, V'ger here, and effect coming, and all this sort of thing. So it gives Goldsmith a chance to do these very impressive scored sequences, and the the movie just becomes music and visual effects, almost nothing else, and you don't get many chances in movies like that, and Goldsmith was at his peak, I think, as a composer. he had come off a decade of doing kind of avant-garde music scores for like Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run, and then coming back to a kind of symphonic style because of the popularity of Star Wars and John Williams. So by the eighties, his scores got very melodic. But Star Trek represents the sort of crossover poem, This and Alien, which he did the same year. A crossover score, which is half modernist and and atonal and and uh, and then half symphonic and and thematic and Wagnerian. It's it's in fact uh, it basically came to pass when he did the enterprise tour sequence. He'd score that whole sequence where Kirk views the Enterprise. And when Robert Wise saw it, it was a great score, but he says, where's the theme? And if you listen, it's on the recent soundtrack album you can get, uh, his original piece for that. And it's a beautiful orchestral piece, but it's a series of, of leitmotifs that never quite go anywhere. You start to hear an enterprise theme start, and then it goes into some other beautiful, melodic, Kind of tonal quality, and then it goes back for another moment. And Robert Wise made him go back and rescore that whole sequence with a strong Enterprise theme, which became used throughout the movie and is the, the next generation. But that wasn't his original impulse for that sequence. The same with the leaving the dry dock score too; he had to rescore that. But those initial pieces that were probably scored against nothing, as you described, yeah. So his imagination. Yeah, I'm sure Wise described him what the feeling should be. Alien and mysterious. So that's what he wrote. But <laughs> those are the notes. <laughs> Two words. But all of that stems
2: from, as you know, we were discussing before we started recording, a film that began as a release date.
1: Yes. They had a release date and they didn't have a script and essentially they rushed into production and and then they ended up firing Abel, who's gonna do the visual effects, because what he had delivered by the time they finished live action wasn't good enough and didn't convince Wise that he could pull it off. It's sort of similar I've Watched this, the documentary on Star Wars when Lucas came back from England after he finished live action and it would only finished two visual effect shots for Star Wars. Now, he didn't have a hard date, but they still had a deadline. They had a budget to meet and, and he was panicked. But in that case, it was just that Dykstra hadn't quite gotten the whole assembly line. They uh, had invented they had everything from the bottom up. He was creating in terms of the motion control work and everything. So that whole mechanism hadn't quite gone up to speed, but I think um, the fear of God was put on everyone to, that they really had to start showing results uh, soon after yeah. Lucas got back from England. But in the case of Star Trek, they fired Robert Abel and hired Trumbull, and Trumbull had to hire John Dykstra because the workload was just tremendous and the deadline to finish was so short. And that's why there's certain mistakes in the film. There's clearly sequences where there's missing sound effects or missing transitions between scenes or missing effects to transition scenes. Or there's the opening credit sequence. It's just black and white title cards. They're not even cross-dissolved. just hard cuts between every title card. It Uh, it looks like a temp. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I can't imagine the hours these people work to pull this off, you know.
2: I have to give a lot of credit, though, to everyone involved in the you know, remastering and even Wise himself. They could have completely redone the title sequence, but they chose not to.
1: You know, they put floating stars through it and and they jazzed up the lettering a little bit and that's about it. I think that's fine. You know, you don't have to get fancy. The music score is so great. Just a star background is, I think, enough to make it feel finished. In some ways, the, the lack of time gives it an odd quality where sequences just seem hollow and there's no background noises and suddenly it just feels like production track. But it does give the film a, a strange kind of claustrophobic feel at times, like they're really out in... Deep space in the middle of nowhere, but it's probably just an accident of not having time to really fill in the soundscape. I think now it just it feels finished. Now that they've gone back and remixed it, uh, it just sounds really good. Well, you know, forty-two
2: years after its release, as a you know very accomplished cinematographer yourself, what is your continuing? obsession with this picture. Well,
1: it's a weird mix of, besides being a Star Trek fan and just wanting to see Kirk and Spock and McCoy and all that sort of stuff, and or the space stuff and the Enterprise Bridge, it has a strange, I don't know, underwater tonal quality to it. It's It's got this mysterious, cold, dark, moody feeling. Like It's like the whole film has a dreamlike quality to it, and I think, uh, especially once they get into V'ger, 2001 has this quality... Too, and I could see the inspiration there. But it's just unlike the later films, which have a lot of warmth and energy and passion to them. This one has a kind of distant quality, which I kind of like uh, in a weird way. It's just, but you have to be in the mood for it. But it's it just feels one thing. It feels like a big movie. It feels like a serious film, you know, with serious ideas behind it. and very polished uh, in its approach. It's weirdly also claustrophobic, like A Twelve Angry Men, you know, you, it's, it's a bottle episode essentially. It all, most of it's on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, they don't go to an alien planet other, other than stepping on the V'ger at the end of the movie, so you've got a huge chunk of this film taking place in one room with you know, several people. I find those sort of movies interesting from us purely staging, covering, editing point of view, you know, who's in the foreground, who's in the background, when does the camera move, when does it not move, when does it rack focus, Uh, where the emphasis is at any one point. And to do that well, you have to be a director who knows staging and dramatics well, and a lot of these old-time directors likewise really understood this. You know, it's not a film that doesn't use editing, it is cut, but it's not the sort of film like today where you, you feel like it's five cameras rolling and the editor kind of created it in post every cut feels like the director and the DP said, okay, now we need this moment and now we need this moment and I'm only going to use a few frames of this moment and it's all pretty much single camera. And I like that kind of old-fashioned craft work of just staging for the lens and, and working out dramatically what you want to see at any one moment. I find that just uh, invigorating in the sense to just watch something like a piece of clockwork being executed. You know, and I, I often think about how as a Star Trek fan, I would I would have done differently with the graphics and and the design, and what I would have kept the same. I would have personally, you know, even back then, had pushed for a set that has more self illuminated quality, a little like the Discovery was in two thousand one. In that film, when you know Bowman goes into this pod, and he's just lit by the glow of the, the computer screens and the buttons, you know. And this is fifty ASA film, sixty five millimeter with a high speed lens, but still, they've designed the set to be bright enough that it they can actually light the actor's face,
2: you know. You feel like the set is alive. Yeah. It's a, in, it, you know, it's part of Hal, it's a, It's
1: part yeah. of his character,
2: um, but you feel like they're so, in an organism. Yeah, you
1: know, so it's possible to do that in the mid-60s with 50 ASA film. It certainly would have been possible in the late 70s with 100 ASA film. Well, you know, Alien, for example, is a film where the set is more self-lit. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very well-designed uh, they tried to design it so they wouldn't have to do any lighting, but they soon found that, that that didn't work. But still, it benefits from the fact that the sets could be, people could just walk around them and just have be lit by the console or lit by the overhead or, or, or something. And I think Star Trek would have benefited from more of that approach, but perhaps because uh, they were inheriting sets that had been started a couple of years earlier for a TV series and they had to modify them. And perhaps production designer wasn't as uh, modern in terms of his approach. He was a little more old fashioned or what, but that or it, television versus feature. Film. Or maybe it's just part of, the, there was a
2: much larger division back yeah. in, that, in those.
1: Things. Yeah. And it could have just been, it's just trying to keep with the original star Trek set design and not uh, change it too much with having it, a lot of lighting added to it. But still, I would have tried to push for it something they started to implement later. You know like I said, uh, Don Peterman whenever he could on Star Trek 4 would hide fluorescent tubes uh, behind consoles and, and things so people were lit more like from the buttons and the screens and it gives those brief shots in Star Trek 4 a lot more believability to them and grounded quality to them. And I, so I wish that approach had been done for Star Trek 1 and it w- would have been possible if they had designed the set more for that. Star Trek V, they rebuilt the whole bridge set and they, they put more lighting into the ceiling, um, and so it's more of a soft top lit set. They wanted more of a soft lit, high key look for Star Trek V. Um, when they got to Star Trek VI, they had the same set, but the Hiro Narita and Nicholas Meyer wanted more of a submarine feeling for it, so they went for a higher contrast lighting style for the bridge set and for the set in general. It's interesting. Apparently, they, the only reason they built a new set for Star Trek 5 is this one that got redressed and repainted for the end of 4. When you see the Enterprise bridge, was repainted all white, which probably wasn't a great idea for a whole movie, but for a one shot, it was fine. But that set got left outside for a f- few days in a rain or something. It got warped, and they had to throw it in a dumpster. So, essentially, Howard's... Uh, Zimmerman, I guess, had to redesign a whole new bridge set um, from scratch for Star Trek V. But if you look at Star Trek VI, it's supposed to be the same set. Nicholas Meyer rearranged and re dis- rearranged elements of the set. The two elevator doors are farther apart. He replaced all the carpeting with steel deck. You know, he just Star Trek V. It feels more like Next Generation. It has that kind of bit of a hotel quality to it, you know, soft carpeting and soft lighting. I always thought of it more of a mall sort of, yeah. <laughs> sort of feel. And Star Trek VI, has uh, always wanted Star Trek to be more militaristic looking, so... It's a harder story. Yeah. He always saw it as kind of a Horatio Hornblower Navy thing, which is something that Roddenberry had originally said Star Trek was based on, but over the years, Roddenberry's vision for Star Trek changed, and he... Didn't want it to seem militaristic, but when Nicholas Meyer took over on Star Trek II, he basically brought back all the Navy traditions, the the bosun's whistles, and and all these sort of things. He he, his phrase was nautical but nice. <laughs> now you're talking about in terms
2: of you know sort of changing it away from sort of a military theme. That was in regard to the original series. Yeah, but. Look at what was happening in the world. The Vietnam War was really heating up, and I'm sure they were probably not wanting to remind viewers yeah. of the military.
1: Although, Rodberry was a veteran, he was a yeah. Marine. But you know, his, his vision for Star Trek sort of expanded over the years. The whole notion that in the future there's no money on the in the Federation, that's something that appears later uh, in uh, Next Generation and, and not in the original series. But some people point pointed out that the color scheme of Star Trek 1, which is very muted, they didn't want the bright red, yellows and, and things. It actually goes back to the way Roddenberry had the original pilot. If you look at the cage, uh, everyone's wearing just uh, pale blue, grays, and golds, and browns, which is what they're wearing in Star Trek 1. It's only after they did the pilot that uh, NBC said, we want more color, so they painted the rails red they painted the elevator doors red they put more color into the the show and i do think sometimes the new costumes in star trek one do feel a little too much like pajamas i think the two-piece outfit is fine it's the single piece outfit the jumpsuit design is is not very flattering and not very attractive and um, not very practical either yeah but I think the two piece outfit is fine. I, it would have been nice if they'd gone to the black pants instead of the solid color look. Then it would have been a bit more of a throwback to the original and, and added some contrast into the outfit so there wasn't, didn't seem so monotone. Even though I understand why, too, they went for the navy pea coat design, to me, it doesn't make sense for a spaceship for everyone to be it's wearing. It's a completely controlled environment. Yeah. Why are they wearing turtlenecks what? with a wool coat on top? The actors must be sweating up a storm in those outfits. Yeah. But a air conditioned spaceship, you know, yep. should be a shirt sleeve. You know, look the space shuttle; they're all wearing mm-hmm. short sleeve polo shirts. That's why I liked in Star Trek One when Kirk comes out in that white t shirt design. I was kind of like, oh yeah, that's probably what spaceship wear would be like. Having said that, maybe the designs could have been a little more flattering had a little more snap to them uh, color-wise or shape-wise, but the Admiral outfit that Kirk shows up in is everyone's favorite, and apparently that was going to be the design for all the costumes, but Roddenberry felt it looked too militaristic. You know, I once got to go to a screening of Star Trek 3 with Leonard Nimoy at the DGA, and afterwards someone asked him about his approach to Star Trek, and he said, first he said, I think I'm somewhere halfway between Wise and, and Nicholas Meyer, but he also said, Everyone's Star Trek is different, so he understands that for some people, Star Trek is space battles and ray guns, and for other people, it's Kirk, Spock, and McCoy triangle, and for other people, it's alien worlds. and you
2: know. That's the great thing about the, to use the term franchise, it's incredibly elastic, and look at how it has been interpreted over not only this feature film series, but multiple series, etc., yeah. and continues on in part because that is open to so much interpretation yeah. based on the characters.
1: Yeah, I think what's nice about the new series like Strange New Worlds is that going back to a non-continuous story arc where they can do individual episodes, they're allowed to do the, uh, the analogy episodes where this is a substitute for Vietnam, like what science fiction can do so well. When they get into the big expensive features, it all tends to be melodramatic action movies because that's what sells, you know idea-based story, you can get away with an episode like that that's an intellectual conceit because the whole franchise isn't going to hang on it. But when they spend millions of dollars on a single film, they realize, oh, it's got to have a villain and it's got to have explosions and it's got to have a lot of running around and, and shoot-'em-ups. And, and
2: but that was the problem with Star Trek the Motion Picture, the yeah. problem by putting the air quotes. Yeah.
1: There are parts of it that could be paced up a little bit at times. Uh, I do think... It needed uh, a little more variation and structure. It's just a little bit too much on the bridge of the Enterprise. I think if they had either extended the first third and made the middle third a little shorter, it would have flowed better. In fact, you know, part of the director's cut, they did trim a minute out of here and there to speed things up a little bit but it's a structural problem in the script I think that they just designed a story that forces them all to get on the Enterprise and stay on there until almost the last 10 minutes of the movie but still if you're a Star Trek fan just spending two hours on the bridge of the Enterprise isn't the worst time spent so uh, I enjoy it
2: <laughs> well uh- Let's wrap it up there because I think we could talk for another two hours. Um, David, I thank you so much for being here today. I was so looking forward to this. Your your enthusiasm is so infectious and your knowledge of all things Trek. Very impressive. Thank you.
0: That was American Cinematographer's David Williams in conversation with M. David Mullen, ASC, about Star Trek, the motion picture, and then some. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. Let us know what you think in the comment section on the website or on iTunes. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and maybe give us a good review while you're at it. For our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos, follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vimeo. And you can visit theasc.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including... Articles on the latest productions, video discussions with leading cinematographers, our complete library of podcast interviews and archival stories, notes on new products and services, and the ASC Store. This episode was mixed at Brickshop Audio in Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and that's a wrap.